Welcome to Dangerous Sermons. This is a sermon series where we're going to look at a number of sermons preached in the Bible that at the end of the sermon, well, the results of the sermon were quite moving. The audience was moved to try to kill the preacher. And that's what happens in some of these stories. That's what happens in the text we're going to look at today. But before I can get into today's story, I need to give you a quick history lesson, if you would, about some of the things that God had asked of the Israelites a long time ago. We read in, the, in Leviticus about the story of God's request for what's called a year of jubilee. God had asked the people to rest. And he had said every seven years you're supposed to let the ground rest and have a year of Sabbath where the, the, you don't farm, you don't work the soil. And then every cycle of seven seven-year periods, every 49 years, God said, I want for you to have a year of jubilee. The word jubilee is important because it literally just means a trumpet blast. That's what the Hebrew word means. Think about this for a A trumpet blast declares this incredible year of jubilee. Now, we're not going to dive into the whole Old Testament narrative today. I encourage you to read that later on, but the storyline that we have in this year of Jubilee was there were some things God said should happen on that year. <clears throat> now, the key question always was this, do you really trust God? That was the key question around Sabbath, around Sabbath years, and around Jubilee. Do you really trust God? This was the issue before the Israelites. So every seven days... We rest, right? That was the image of the Old Testament. God had rested on the Sabbath day and he created in creation. He rested the seventh day. That became a Sabbath. So the Israelites were told on that day, hey, don't, you don't have to work that day. Take the Sabbath off. Rest. They learned to trust him every week. But then this idea of taking a Sabbath year was a little harder because the concept was that in the sixth year, God would so bless the people that they would have enough produce, enough grain, enough food to sustain them through the year they were in, the year that was to come, and the following year until the harvest could come in again. Take a Sabbath year and to let the ground lie fallow took a great amount of faith. So the question was, do you trust that God will do what he said he would do for you? And for the people to trust God in that, especially if that six year hadn't seemed as exciting as they wanted it to be, was hard. This thing that God asked for in the year of Jubilee was especially tough. Every seven years, you let the ground lie fallow not one year, but two. So you had to believe and trust that God would provide enough to carry you through all that time. Now here's what's fascinating. <laughs> we read that before the Babylonians take over the Israelites, that the prophet Jeremiah gives a prophecy. And in his prophecy, Jeremiah says, well, what have you done? You've not been honoring God in these Sabbaths. And he warned them. He said, listen, if you'll honor God, he'll take care of you. But if you don't, if you don't, destruction's coming. The question before them was, are we going to trust God? Now, there's a second thing that happened in the year of Jubilee, and, and we sometimes misunderstand this as, 
as uh, wealth repositioning, or we, we might see it as a lot of other things. But the other thing that happened in this Jubilee year, the seventh, uh, after seven years of, of, of Sabbath, the other thing that was supposed to happen in this year was that all of the people who had sold themselves into slavery, so to pay a debt, people would sell themselves into slavery for so many years. They were all to be set free. Now, if the family could pay the price, they were supposed to pay it. But at the very end of the day, the last words about the year of Jubilee were, all y'all belong to me. So everybody gets a, a fresh start. Why would God put a rule like that in place? Well, he never wanted the gap between the people to get too great. And who did the year of Jubilee help the most? It helped the poor. It helped those who had made themselves into slaves. And it guaranteed them back a chance to have freedom, to have, have opportunity. So just picture the imagery of the year of Jubilee. The trumpet blasts. The people are given back a possession of, of land. They have a place. And those who had been slaves who were Israelites were set free. These are the things that happened in the year of Jubilee. Now, Isaiah the prophet speaks to the people after they have been carried off into captivity because they didn't honor God the Sabbath. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And they were taken away for 70 years. The land was laying fallow while they were imprisoned. They were foreigners. And Isaiah the prophet begins to give a prophecy and he talks to the people and he tells them, listen, when we get back, we're going to honor the year of Jubilee. We're going to honor God's freedom. We're going to have freedom again. And he tells all that story. <clears throat> but of course, we know what happens. As they come back, and once again, there's no evidence that they followed what God asked them to do. So the key question of this whole Old Testament idea was, do we trust God enough to do what God asks us to do? Now, if you have your Bibles, you might turn with me to the, to the book of Luke, and I want to read this sermon to you that has a lot to do with that little quick history lesson. And this is the story that we read in Luke chapter 4. Now, this follows right after Jesus has just been tempted by the devil. We read in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, these words. It says that Jesus returned to Galilee. Galilee is a region, like coming to Indiana. He's in a, he's in a region of the of the country, and he says he comes back into this region, and the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he went teaching in synagogues, that is, places where people gathered to worship, and everyone praised Jesus. And then he went to Nazareth. Now, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, and so Jesus goes to his hometown, like homecoming Sunday, Right? And Jesus is going to give a sermon. When he goes to give this sermon, he comes back to his hometown and it says that this is the place he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, the day of rest, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Now, this is just a free aside, but we should all note this, right? We should note that Jesus, he was frequently, as was his custom, to go into worship when there was an opportunity for that. So someone could say, did Jesus go to church? Well, in the way that he would have understood church in that time and that church was thought of, yes, he did. He went. Now, it says that he was there on the Sabbath on this day as was his custom. An incredible thing happened as he stood up 
to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where these words are written. I guess this, this, these are the words that were written by Isaiah when Isaiah was talking to the people as they were coming out of being imprisoned and coming out of being captive in Babylon. They were coming back home to Jerusalem, just like Jesus is coming back home to Nazareth, right? They were coming back, and Isaiah's words had been words of freedom. We're going to follow God. We're going to do what God asks us to do. We're going to be about this year of Jubilee. We're going to trust that God will give us what we need. So Jesus stands up, and like a trumpet blast, he makes an announcement that is powerful. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, hey, this whole thing, this jubilee, this year when certain kinds of debts were forgiven, when people were set free, when prisoners were set free, when slaves were set free, that's what I'm here to do. And his announcement was just like a trumpet blast, saying, I am the embodiment of everything God's been wanting you to do, but bear this in mind. There is little evidence that they had ever obeyed God and trusted him in this cycle of jubilee every 50 years. There's very little evidence that other than just in tiny sporadic places and people that it was ever observed. They'd been punished for it, but they hadn't lived out anything different. As a people, while they acknowledged God, they had failed to trust God in the sense of doing what he asked them to do. And now Jesus stands up, God with skin on, in their midst, and he reads the same words that Isaiah had read when the people were about to be set free from their slavery. He says these words to them, and it says that when he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and then Jesus sat down. Now the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a powerful word because Jesus says to them, Listen, this is what it's all about. All the other things about Jubilee, that was all a foreshadowing or or it was all kind of a prophecy about what's supposed to happen. And today, that prophecy, that foreshadowing is fulfilled. The one who can set people free is here, and I'm among you. Now, it says that the people there, they listened to all that he had said. They were hanging on his word. And it says in verse 22, all of them spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's? Son, they ask. Now, this doesn't sound like a very dangerous sermon just yet. Jesus proclaiming freedom. But the question before us was always the same. Are we going to trust and believe God? This is the question that's always been tied to this year, this idea of Jubilee. And the question that's before these people in this room on that day is, 
Are we going to trust God? Are we going to believe Jesus? And so at first, they like what he said. Boy, that'd be great. Debts forgiven, freedom. I like that. Returning property to its rightful owners. Those, all that sounded great. Gracious words. But Jesus here now does something that he'll do many times, and he shows us that he doesn't just look and doesn't just hear our, out, our words that we speak through our mouth. He hears, and he understands, and he perceives what we think. He understands what we think and believe in our hearts, not just what we say. The Bible says this over and over. It says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Jesus knows their thoughts. And when it says that they began to say, isn't this Joseph's son, Jesus is beginning to perceive their hearts. And in their hearts, they are not believing that he's the son of God. They're holding him towards his earthly father. And they're not believing that he's the one who really can do the things he's talking about. And they're thinking something very different. And because he knows their thoughts, Jesus now speaks to them in a very different kind of tone. And the sermon takes an ugly turn. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you have done in Capernaum. Jesus perceived that what they were hoping for is the same thing that several rulers were hoping for. Jesus, do a magic trick. <laughs> do something really cool for us. You know, hey, you're back home with us. You know, hey, if you want us to believe you, then don't just tell us something, but demonstrate it to us. Show us that you really are who you say you are, Jesus. Do something really cool in front of us. Then we'll trust you. Then we'll believe what you've said. Yeah, you just said today you, you're the one who can set captives free. You just said you're the one who can make things right. But if you really want us to believe you, then you're going to have to give us a sign. Do something for us right here in our midst. And he perceives that this is their heart. It's this idea that, that Gideon kind of had, right, in the Old Testament. When God says, Gideon, I want you to do something, Gideon's like, well, Lord, if you really want me to do that, then you do this. Make the fleece dry. If you really want me to do this, then make the fleece sweat. If you really want me to do this and you do all these other things, then I'll believe you. Now, God was patient with Gideon. Jesus, seemingly, is a little less patient with this crowd because he knows that their hearts are quick to change. And when you say things that they want to hear, they love you. When you say things they need to hear, that love quickly turns to hate. And so, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, understands what they want. And then he goes on and he says, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of of Sidon. Now, what an unusual story. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about in the Old Testament that God was trying to get the attention of the Israelites. 
and he allowed them to come into a bad circumstance because he was trying to wake them up, and that when he sent his prophet to go warn the people and warn the king about what was happening, the people didn't want to hear the message, the king didn't want to hear the message. The only person who welcomed Elijah was a foreigner, a woman who was a foreigner, and she welcomed him, she fed him, she took care of him, and Jesus is saying, listen, when the great Elijah, who all of Israel acknowledged was a prophet of God, when he came, y'all didn't listen to him either. So Elijah blessed the foreigner instead of blessing you. Now Jesus will double down and say the same thing in a different story. He says, and there, was, there were many lepers uh, in Israel in the time of Elisha, the second prophet after Elijah. Yet none of those Israelites who were lepers were cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian, who was a foreigner, who served a foreign king, who only came to Israel for help because he had a slave from Israel. And she said, hey, you should go see the prophet. And he did. And God healed him, but he hadn't healed any of the other children of Israel of their leprosy. These are the two stories that Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, what's Jesus telling them? What's so infuriating in the story? He's saying, basically saying this, right? If you don't listen to the message, if you don't believe, God will find others who will. And if you won't receive the freedom and the blessing that God wants for you, rest assured, God will find those who will. Now, when the people heard Jesus say this, verse 28 says that all the people in the synagogue were furious. They were so angry when they heard this. And they got up and they drove Jesus out of the town and they took him to the brow of a hill. It's more like a cliff because the whole town is built really high up on a ledge. And they built this place and they took Jesus up to the edge of the ledge in order to throw Jesus down off the cliff. Talk about being offended by the sermon. Talk about a dangerous message. Jesus was telling them the truth. Right? What was the truth? Jesus was saying, I'm the only one who can set you free. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the one who fulfills this promise to set the captives free, to make the wrong things right. But you don't want that. You want a rock star from your hometown that you can be proud of. And Jesus knows that his message is to be the suffering servant. It was never about popularity. That wasn't what it was about. Jesus, if it was about popularity, he would never have said those words about drink my blood and eat my flesh that caused the great falling away in John chapter 6, verse 66. That wasn't his mission. Popularity wasn't the mission of Jesus. Salvation was. And when they realized that Jesus was calling them to trust God in new ways, when Jesus wasn't there just to say nice things to them, but to tell them what they needed to hear, they said, well, we don't need you, Jesus. We don't want you, Jesus. And they tried to kill him. But it wasn't the time for Jesus, although this story is certainly another forerunner of the events that will happen at the cross, where on Sunday, or the first day, the people celebrate with words of, Hosanna, Hosanna. Just a few days later, the people will turn on Jesus and shout out, crucify him, crucify him. 
from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is kind of the model that he will live with. So Jesus walked right through them in the saddest words of the story. And he went on his way. They had Jesus in their midst. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The Savior of the world. And instead of receiving them, they wanted to kill him. So Jesus left. He went down on his way to another town. And true to his words that he had come to set the captives free, Luke tells us the very first thing that he does there is begin to teach. The people were amazed at his message, and it tells us in verse 30, 31 that in the synagogue there was a man there who was possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. That man cried out at the top of his voice, and he said, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And how ironic is it that a demon knows who Jesus is and understands his place, but the people of his own hometown, who knew him perhaps better than anyone else, refused to believe. And Jesus says to him, this is the nice version. He says, be quiet. I think it was probably a little harsher than that. Hush up now. Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The demon threw the man down before them and came out without injuring him. Jesus set the captives free. He said, I've come to proclaim a year of jubilee, to set people who are in prison free, and he did it. Not only did he do that, the very next passage tells us that he was healing many when he left that place. He goes to the home of Simon and he heals a woman who was very sick, Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus did, and do, did indeed do what he said that he would do. So what of us today? And what of Christ's message for us? From the beginning, the question was, do you trust God? Do you trust him? This was the question that was always before the Israelites. Do you trust me? And it was what they always struggled with. When he was leading them out toward the promised land and they grumbled and they complained when Moses was up on the mountain, the question was, do you trust that God's going to do what he's going to do? But within 50 days, they couldn't handle it. And things fell apart. Throughout their history, it's a story over and over and over of God saying, do you trust me? Will you listen to me? Will you obey me? Will you follow me? And what we see over and over and over, sadly, are the failings of humanity. People just like us who failed to trust God when times were tough, when things were difficult, and they just kept giving up, doing their own thing. Even in his own hometown, when he said, hey, God's fulfilling something great. He wants to do something great right here in your midst. They rejected the messenger, and they rejected his message. And what of us? Jesus wants to do something great today among us in us, through us. You know, he still wants to set the captives free. He still wants to release those who are imprisoned. You know, who, who most benefited from the year of Jubilee would have been the poorest among them. That's who would have most benefited from the year of Jubilee. Do you know who would have benefited the least from the year of Jubilee? 
the wealthiest among them. It would have meant that their whole life had to get repositioned, right? If, all they, if the lands went back and they lost their servants, if you were a wealthy landowner and all this happened, it was, it was inconvenient for you. You had to go hire new people. Uh, you had to go do a lot of things. And, and um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't easy if you were the people that were the haves. So who most benefited from the year of Julia was the poor. And what was it that Jesus said when he opened that passage up? When he starts to preach to them, the very first words that Jesus spoke, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I want you to understand something. We are the spiritually poor. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we are desperately in need of rescue, of freedom from the bonds of sin and death and our adversary, the devil. And Jesus comes to us and he asks the same question today that they were thinking about here, and that's always been the case in the Old Testament. Jesus' words are, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you believe in me? Will you follow me? Will you give your life to me? Because I have given my life for you. It might be that you're here today and you are struggling to trust Jesus in an area of your life. I encourage you, if that's your circumstance, to make that a matter of prayer. Take that to God during this time of invitation. There are others here today who I suspect you haven't yet made a decision for Jesus. If that's your circumstance, then I encourage you to make that decision today as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.